I invite you to turn with me to the book of, hey, my mom's here. Look at that. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Well, I put on this cool hat that I got last night. Or yesterday during the day. This was the, the, what I got from uh, the yard sale yesterday. This was my big find. And I tried it on and, and Becky was like, oh, you got to get it. And I'm like, okay, but I'm not going to wear this the whole sermon, but you know, that was my big find. I don't know what yours was. Um, thank you so much, uh, everybody that came out and worked the tables um, and were involved here. We ended up raising over $1,400 for Catonsville Emergency Assistance. Yeah, that was great. Um, so that is that. Um, and uh, oh, most importantly, then thank Becky Kalk for all of her work. Uh, for organizing that. Um, also, really quick, I know Kara mentioned it, but we are doing this reveal survey. Um, I hope that uh, everyone here um, will, if you haven't already, have a chance to, to take this survey this week. Um, the, the hope of it is really to just take the temperature, the spiritual temperature of our congregation um, as we seek to develop um, ministries as we look to do the, the kind of things that we want our church to be about um, as a community we want to hear and this is a way that will reveal um, some of the things that we might uh, want to you know put our time and effort in over the next couple of years um, as we look uh, at this kind of um, hinge point in New Hope's history. Um, so we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and can anybody remember what the big idea, what's the big idea of 1 Corinthians 15? Resurrection. Resurrection. Now, now on the scale of 1 to 10, Marlene, on a scale of 1 to 10, how important is the resurrection to the Apostle Paul? Way past 10. Way past 10. I love it. I love it. Um, yeah, the resurrection is extraordinarily important to the Pauline theology, to the New Testament theology, um, because it is something that we go all in for. If not for the resurrection, then why are we doing any of this? Why does any of this matter if not for the resurrection, if not for the actual bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ? Um, so, <clears throat> with that, I'll ask the congregation to please stand for the reading of the Word of God. starting in verse 29. Otherwise, what will those people do who receive baptism on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? And why are we putting ourselves in danger every hour? I die every day. This is as certain, brothers and sisters, as my boasting of you, a boast I make in Christ Jesus our Lord. If with merely human hopes I fought with wild animals at Ephesus, what would I have gained by it? But if the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Brothers and sisters, in the Lord all flesh is grass. The beauty of that grass is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. But this, the word of our God, will endure forever. Amen? Amen. Amen. Have a seat. Not easy stuff. Not easy stuff. What's Paul talking about? A couple of uh, things. It's, it's, he's kind of highlighting some rather um, peculiar things that, that the church in Ephesus, or uh, the church in Corinth specifically is doing. Um, but then there's some phrases in there that we just 
don't necessarily recognize. Um, so it's my understanding, I wasn't in the room at the time, but I heard that, that Jason let you in on this uh, concert that I went to last week. I, I relived a little bit of my, of my high school uh, music taste uh, last week, and I went to see this band Metallica. Uh, it, was, it was very loud. <laughs> um, and, um, of course, you know, you go to this concert, and there's lots of people wearing black clothes, and there's t-shirts with these gothic images, and the music was extraordinarily loud, and, and James Hetfield, the lead singer, he, he, he says, Baltimore, you, you like it heavy, Metallica gives you heavy, and they play the, you know, big song. Um, and, and actually, one of the really cool things about it was uh, he just kept having this repeated thankfulness um, to the city of Baltimore and for his fans. And, and there was this sense that, um, you know, these folks that are all walking around and kind of playing into the culture of this band, um, they're playing into that because, you know, Metallica's kind of created this culture with their fan base. Um, but it's, it's funny because you're walking around and you're like, you know what, outside of the context of a Metallica concert, I don't know if I would see this thing, you know, some of these things. Um, but now contrast that idea with the cover of your bulletin. Are these gentlemen going to see Metallica? No, where are they going? What's it? They're going to a Jimmy Buffett concert. What are, what are they called? They're called Parrot Heads. You know, um, people at Jimmy Buffett concerts, they love bright colors, and they love these tropical animals, and they wear hats with tropical animals on them, um, and, and, they, and they decorate their cars with, with giant sharks, and they drink all these fruity drinks, and um, parrot heads do some weird things, um, but they are all in the context of a gathering of Jimmy Buffett fans. It, it's normal to dress like a parrot head at a Buffett concert. Um, not only that, I don't have, would have to tell you what would happen um, if you showed up to a Buffett concert like wearing a suit. Um, if you showed up, on the other hand, if you showed up at a Metallica concert wearing a hat with a parrot on it, Hawaiian shirts and flip-flops, I, you know, that might not all go well, that well for you either. But let's assume that there are people in the world that would enjoy both a Metallica and a Jimmy Buffett concert. Um, we can still acknowledge that the cultural experiences there are relative to the creative source of the gathering. We often do things in one context which would be considered odd or out of the ordinary, um, out of place in another. And our text this morning finds the Apostle Paul continuing this discussion of um, the importance of the resurrection. We have to remember that Paul is going all in on this one, all in with this topic. When I say that, that I mean that if the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ didn't actually happen, if the tomb isn't actually empty, then there is absurdity in everything that we are. Christians do some odd things. Um, Paul reminded us earlier in the chapter that, that the Christ's death and resurrection were of first importance. Without the resurrection, Christianity, it's meaningless. And this, I believe, is the point of today's passage. Paul's going to throw three images at us, though. He's going to throw three word pictures that are going to kind of mess with us a little bit. And the truth is um, that this has uh, been a passage that the best of theologians, the best of theological uh, uh, writers and scholars have wrestled with. Um, N.T. Wright 
Richard Hayes, Michael Gorman, um, as I read their work this week, I, I actually was, was strangely comforted by the fact that none of them were willing to boldly declare a definite interpretation of that verse 29. None of them, and, and I looked at other ones as well, were able to say definitively what they believed that baptism on behalf of the dead thing is all about. Um, we're not sure. Not only is it not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament, it's also it's mentioned so quickly, so casually, that it would appear that, that Paul um, assumes his readers know what he's talking about. Um, I, I just finished up a, a Master's of Arts in Theology, and um, I, one of the things that I've, I've noticed as I went through my schooling was that I have, these, I have a tremendous amount of respect for pastors, for theologians, for commentators that are able to leave things unresolved. Um, there's a power that a leader can have to try to be a person that has all of the answers and try to say that I'm the answer man and I have the, the 20 things that you need to know and if you don't you know, line up with this, you're going to be on the outs and there are things here, there are things in Scripture which we're actually not a whole lot, 100% sure what it is he's talking about. And this is one of those passages. Um, for, uh, in respect to, to these, these scholars that I was reading, they were willing to kind of leave this unresolved and look at the broader kind of context of the passage. Um, now, that being said, as we attempt to stay humble, we can take a few stabs of what is possibly going on here. Um, first of all, there are some that think Paul is making some kind of a reference to like pagan death cults or first century paganism or something like that. Um, the context just doesn't seem to support that at all. If you read the whole rest of the chapter, if Paul is referencing some dark you know, activity or something like that, he, he, he mentions it far too fleetingly um, for it to be something as dark as that. It, it doesn't seem to support that. Um, it could be, a lot of people have taken this to mean that he's referring to back baptism by proxy. Um, the idea that if, that if I died and you questioned um, my relationship with the Lord, then you could be baptized on my behalf in order to secure my salvation. Um, the problem here is that seems to run counter to everything else we know about Paul and what Paul has said about Christ working in and through you, through no motivation but God's love and grace. In Ephesians, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not the results of works, so that no one may boast. As clear as the New Testament is about the importance of community um, in the life of a Christ follower, we must never fall for that lie that, that we can affect others' salvation. Only the Holy Spirit can lead us to Christ because, uh, not because of anything that we or even our friends and our family have done, but because of what Christ has done through and in us. So it could be that. A lot of people think it's that. I don't. Um, baptism of Jesus' followers who had not yet been baptized. Possible. Meaning that if the whole point of baptism is, is to proclaim your faith, um, proclaim this faith that you were once dead in your sins and now you're alive in Christ, uh, baptism could be on behalf of the dead in the sense that it's on behalf of a person in the crowd who, for the first time in their life, the, the gospel sunk in. 
Um, in a sense, they go down into the water dead and they come out alive in Christ. Paul may be speaking metaphorically in that sense. It's important for us to remember that, that in the New Testament context, um, faith in Christ was intimately connected with baptism. Uh, the idea that a person would be a Christ follower and not immediately and publicly um, proclaim their faith through uh, this activity of baptism, it, it wouldn't have made sense to Paul. Um, that's something for the, some of us to, to consider here today. If, if we could consider ourselves a Christ follower, but yet have not yet been baptized, that may be a word for us today. Um, this could be something that's happening uh, in the wake of death. He could be talking about people who became Christ followers after being like, inspired to faith after the death of a loved one. Uh, many of us know that, that deaths can be, can be powerful catalysts for our lives. They could call us to, to take stock of our own life and kind of listen to the, that knocking of God. Uh, my grandfather died when I was a senior in high school. And I remember that being a powerful moment of reflection as I was poised to enter adulthood. This man who had effectively been my father growing up um, had, uh, was now gone. And that meant something to my life. It meant something to the relationship that I had with God and the relationship I had with my family. That was a powerful moment there. So maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's, a, it's that uh, sort of catalyst moment. Um, he could be talking about people who were about to die, people who were on death's door. He could be talking about folks who are all but dead through some sort of sickness. Or, and this is kind of funny, it, it, he could be talking about something far less mysterious. Um, he could be just talking about cleaning dead people, um, baptizing them by submerging them in water to clean them so that they could be clean for the resurrection. If the dead are not raised, why would we bother cleaning you know, dead bodies? I don't know. And I'm here to tell you that as regards to that point, I think that's okay for us not to know. Um, and I think that Paul's making a larger point that we can grasp onto about how if the resurrection isn't real, like there are things that we do that don't make any sense. Uh, regardless of what it is, it, it does appear that it was clear to his readers. And also, it, it also appears that it wasn't the point of his argument. The point of his argument was that whatever baptism on behalf of the dead is, it makes no sense in a resurrectionless world. Think about that. What are the things in your life, what are the things that you're engaged with that make no sense in a resurrectionless world? See, we don't have to look far to find some peculiar pieces um, in our own Christian culture that really just don't make a, le- a lick of sense if the resurrection isn't truth. I mean, look around. Look at these, these, what does the story of this room say when we think about these stained glass windows and we think about um, these, uh, these, these statues and the cross and the gold, and, and, and this is an, obviously an Episcopal setting for worship, and, and New Hope is, an Epis- is not an Episcopal church, um, but this is the church. And there's something that we're trying to say, there's a narrative that we're trying to say when we look around the room um, and if the resurrection isn't true, all of this stuff is just stuff. These superficial images and outfits, they begin to make more sense in light of the resurrection. But remember that robes and stained glass windows are nothing compared to the really weird stuff that the church does. I mean, think about it. Rather than accumulate wealth for our own advantage, we often give large portions of our time 
talent and treasure back to God through offering. We do this in light of the empty tomb. Um, we gather in homes throughout the week and hear testimony um, uh, 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 and intentional about getting into each other's lives. Um, we study inspired text and we hear testimony of how God is working in, our ch- uh, in each other's lives. We share our doubts, we share our fears, we share our longings, we share our pain. We do that in light of the empty tomb. We teach our kids that they aren't just the kids of church members, they are the church. We should ask them, you know, what do you think the church should look like? We do this in light of the empty tomb. We sing songs that remind us that the most important relationship in our lives is our relationship with God. He is the King of the ages, Creator, Redeemer, the Lamb for sinners slain. We sing these songs to remind us of this story, to remind us of the Lordship of Christ. We do all of that in light of the empty tomb. In light of the empty tomb, we treat others better than we have been treated because we're defined by love. We're quick to forgive. We're anxious to help. We're humble to pray. In light of the empty tomb, we believe He's listening and more important he's speaking in light of the empty tomb we're to give the shirt off our back because we know that he's got ours we gather together and we eat this little piece of bread and we drink this little cup of wine in remembrance of christ's suffering on the cross we believe that this first century Palestinian Jew who died some torturous death at the hands of the Roman Empire did so to effect a cosmic, a revolution of cosmic reconciliation with the creator of all things. We do all of that in light of the empty tomb. Because if we do any of this, because we desire power that comes from some kind of religious institution, then we have failed the call. Make no mistake, our only hope rests on what Christ has done. The resurrection gives us cause to stand for the oppressed and aid the marginalized. And when we fall short, the resurrection is the thing that's going to drive us back to true north. As we struggle as our community, as our our wider country, the church, we struggle with addictions um, substance abuse, greed, envy, lust, these, these traps that we can easily let ourselves fall into. But we're here to remind ourselves, no, 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 no. No, the, t- the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. I'm on the side of life. I'm on the side of love, and, and I don't want to act any other way. There is also, there is the other side of the coin to consider, uh, the ver- verse of the equation. So, if the resurrection is falsehood, then our faith is in vain. But, but if the resurrection is truth, then that means we're called to follow Christ into new creation. We're called to anticipate new creation today. So that if we can sit here and declare that the resurrection as truth, what does that actually mean for your lives? I have to ask myself, in what ways am I not living like the resurrection is truth. In what ways are these things that I'm, the, the, the things that I'm putting my time into, in what ways am I doing that as one who has found his identity in Jesus Christ and in his resurrection? Am I really living 
like I've experienced victory in Christ and been set free from death? Or do I continue to look for superficial solutions to eternal problems? Am I living a life of faith fueled by love and directed towards His glory? Or am I just marking time? Further on in the passage, Paul gives us some words that may be a little bit easier to explain as hyperbole. He says, why are we putting ourselves in danger every hour? The story of the Apostle Paul is an incredible one. Uh, Turn with me to 2 Corinthians for a moment, chapter 11. Here Paul's talking about some of these sufferings, these dangers that he's encountered. He says, five times I've received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. For a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers. Dangers from bandits. Danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at the sea. Danger from false brothers and sisters. In toil and hardship. Though a many a sleepless night hungry and thirsty, often without food, cold, and naked. And besides other things, I'm under daily pressure because of my anxiety for all the churches. Who's weak that I'm not weak? Who is made to stumble that I am not indignant? I mean, that sounds like pretty odd, incredible stuff for a person to go through if they didn't actually believe that the resurrection is truth. The point is that none of it makes any sense without the truth of the resurrection. Paul even makes the comment that he he dies every day. Each day he pours out his life sacrificially because he is imitating Christ. The wild animals he mentions fighting in Ephesus are are probably more references to to adversaries that he's encountered um, more so than like actual wild beasts. Because, you know, we know this because usually the people who faced wild beasts um, didn't actually go home and write letters about it. Um, usually, uh, he, he says, what would I have gained by it? Why would I give my life to this gospel, to proclaiming this good news, if it was all just the fleeting hopes of some failed Jewish Messiah? I don't want to give my life to that. Do you? But if it's real... If the resurrection is truth, then I want to say that's worth fighting for. It's worth living for. It's worth dying for. It's worth sharing our faith for. It's worth being the church for. Accept those substitutes, friends. This is the big one. And when we suffer, we suffer in resurrection hope. Suffering is an incredibly peculiar thing in our culture, and I you know, I've been doing this full-time pastor gig for about a year and a half now, and I could say I know two things about the people in this room. Number one, we're comfortable. I mean, maybe not in these wooden pews. But comparatively to the rest of the world, we're doing okay. Clean running water, access to electricity, access to an outrageous amount of food. Compared to the times that Christians... We're thrown to the wild animals for entertainment. My, my morning hasn't been too bad. And to write off in comments, he says, everywhere St. Paul went, there was a riot. Everywhere I go, they serve tea. So yeah, we're comfortable. But I know this. As comfortable as we are, 
We're suffering. There's pain in this room. I know there is. We're hurting for ourselves and we're hurting for our spouses and we're hurting for our kids. Maybe we're suffering in our marriage. Maybe we're suffering because of a lack of marriage. Maybe we're suffering because we want to make sure that we give our kids the best shot possible. Maybe we're struggling with unbelief and fear and doubt and depression and addiction. And maybe we're suffering because we have this longing for justice and mercy to be shown to those who are the most vulnerable in our society. Maybe we're suffering with the feeling that our faith just hasn't been all that exciting lately. Maybe we're suffering from the inability or simply the refusal to name our pain, yet we keep coming back. We keep trying to do this thing called church because we're in this to encourage one another, to hold one another, and to hold firmly to the truth that, that the future... The future of the people in this room who are suffering real pain is absolutely in God's hands. We do that very weird thing in light of the empty tomb. And Paul leaves us with one last image this morning. He says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If the dead are not raised, we might as well party like there's no tomorrow because there may not be, and even if there is, what does it matter? I thought this week about two parties. Not actual parties, but parties in my head. The first party is the passage that that Paul is referencing there. This idea, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. It's a party that you're going to because maybe you were invited, you feel like you have to go, but the fact that you are going to go, you're just going to kind of give way to excess. And there's sure, there's a lot of food there. It's a, it's a rockin' party with maybe a lot of loud music, um, but the people that you're going to interact with at this party, you're really just trying to impress them, or you don't care about them at all, and you're really just there for the food and the drink. Um, this is a party that is defined by excess. This is a party that is defined... Um, by uh, who cares about what tomorrow is. Um, I'm just going to party as high and as hard as I possibly can because there is no tomorrow. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And then there's a party that's defined by the resurrection. The kind of party that should come from a community that is surrounded by this thought of resurrection. This is a party that, yeah, it's fun. There's certainly a lot of food, but it's an abundance of food, maybe not an excess of food. The point of this party is abundance. The point of this party is that when you come, you you actually are coming to, to sit down with another human being and say, let us celebrate together for these things that God's done in our lives. How is God working in your life? Um, this is a party that when you speak to another person, you, you want to do more listening than, than talking. This is a party that we share a meal together and we say that because I believe that there's a resurrection hope, I'm going to do everything that I can to help identify you and encourage you in the truth that I know that your life is headed somewhere. Let us party. Let us have a celebration of that hope. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we live. I want New Hope Community Church 
to be a place of that second party. And in my eyes, that party is what our communion table is. It's that when we come to this table, the Lord's table is saying, come. The Lord is saying, come to my table. Come, bring everything to my table. Bring your fears, bring your doubts, bring your pain, bring your suffering. Be honest. Bring your sins. We're going to celebrate communion together. And I, just, I would just ask you, as we do that, to just keep in mind this idea that we do it in light of the resurrection. The cross only makes sense in light of the resurrection. And then because of the resurrection... That means we have to go back and do business with the cross. We have to go back and say, why did Jesus go to the cross for me? That's a powerful image, to think of the cross and the resurrection together. And that's what I want us to think about as we come to the communion table today. Now, our communion table at New Hope is an open table. And we invite all those who call upon the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to come forward. If you do not worship Jesus as King, you should not feel obligated to participate. The bread is unleavened, the red is white, um, uh, the red is wine, and the white is grape juice. But first, though, please stand and join as churches throughout the centuries have done in the reading of the Nicene Creed.